I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 30th, 2011. Coming up, we look at the strange rise in autoimmune diseases and allergies with experts from the University of Chicago and Denver's National Jewish Hospital. And we explore whether genetically modified crops might be increasing our chance of getting ill with agriculture scientist Charles Benbrook. This particular study is the kind of big surprise that isn't supposed to happen with a technology that many of its advocates have said is the most carefully tested food technology ever. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We live in a sea of microbes. They are in the air we breathe, on our skin, in our guts. And while many people think we're better off wiping out as many as we can, we need microbes for our physical health and perhaps to even feel good inside. That's the implication of a study just published today by the National Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It was led by John Cryan of Ireland's University of Cork. In the study, Cryan fed mice a broth containing Lactobacillus rhamnosus. That's a well-known type of live bacterium that sometimes is consumed by people to promote digestive health and stronger immunity. The mice fed this lacto-strain appeared to benefit in another way. They seemed to feel better. That is, they exhibited fewer behaviors related to stress, anxiety, and depression compared with mice fed plain broth. Mice fed the bacterial broth also had significantly lower levels of stress hormone corticosterone in response to acute stress. It's not yet clear what this research means for humans, but it does raise the possibility that, to stay in good cheer, someday more people might drink a toast with a cocktail of beneficial microbes. For quite some time now, corn has been scorned, while switchgrass and miscanthus have been touted as the better crops to use for biofuel. They demand less energy input for each unit of energy they produce, after all. The emphasis has been on fossil fuel use, the carbon footprint, as well as on the food versus fuel debate. But a new study points a finger at biocrops like switchgrass for consuming more water than corn. It isn't the first time that scientists have scrutinized the water demands of biofuel crops, but this study shows that under present weather conditions, miscanthus and switchgrass use more water than corn, in fact by roughly 58% and 38% respectively. This is no small matter in drought-afflicted and high-growth states like Texas and much of the interior west, including Colorado. Praveen Kumar, a civil and environmental engineer at the University of Illinois, led the study. It was published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science Early Edition. The researchers predicted that the net water use will increase further when temperatures and carbon dioxide levels rise. Higher levels of CO2 alone make the plants more water efficient since their pores are open less time to absorb carbon dioxide, but rising temperatures counteract this effect. The plants will transpire more when their pores are open, losing more water than they save. So it's not as simple as corn is bad, non-food crops are good, for biofuel anyway. This week, the world's largest scientific organization is holding its annual meeting at the Denver Convention Center. It's the American Chemical Society, and the theme of this year's conference is the chemistry of air, space, and water. The theme will cover several topics, including chemistry affecting the exposure and response of humans to toxins in the air and water, chemistry affecting the climate and chemical strategies for removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere or reducing their emissions to it, 
chemistry for enhancing the availability of clean drinking water, and chemistry of atmospheres and clouds on other planets, especially those that provide insight into thinking about our own planet. The annual meeting runs through Thursday. There is a fee. Find out more by Googling American Chemical Society annual meeting. For something free, there's still time to register for the CU Medical School's award-winning mini-med school, where you can learn what medical students learn without the stress, or at least some of what they learn in just eight weeks. The classes will take place on Wednesday evenings starting September 7th, and they're simulcast to locations throughout Colorado. Find out more by Googling CU Mini-Med School. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. This week, KGNU is featuring discussions about genetically modified foods. And as part of this theme, today, How on Earth's Shelley Schlender will take a look at genetically modified crops and other modern farming techniques and how they might or might not be connected to the dramatic rise in allergies, asthma, and autoimmune diseases. Also in her report, Shelley will look into the strange case of a bacterium in genetically modified corn that was not supposed to get into the human bloodstream. New research indicates that it does. Here's Shelley's report. Around the nation, some communities are battling about whether or not to continue planting and expanding genetically modified crops. There's plenty of debate about whether farmers can stay in business if they don't grow GM crops. If we ban GMOs, do we end up with fewer poisons or more? Can we afford to move away from the regular use of both GM crops and pesticides? And how is our increasingly industrial style of farming and living affecting the troubling rise of three diseases that begin with the letter A? They are autoimmune disease, allergies, and asthma. To find out more, we go now to a world leader in the study of asthma and allergies in Denver, National Jewish Health. Andy Liu, an immunologist at National Jewish, says allergies and asthma used to be fairly rare, but the percentage of both are now high enough to make them common. So allergies would be about 50%. It's actually slightly over 50%. Um, asthma is probably running around 10%. In the 1960s, only 10% of Americans had allergies. Asthma, maybe 3%. That was when researchers started tracking its rise. And Lou says they discovered that with each decade, the incidence of allergies and asthma went up around 50%. He says it might be leveling off some now, but from 1960 through the 1990s, the rate of asthma and allergies went up over 300%. And Lou says this increase is not just due to better diagnosis. Actually, with allergies, you can allergy test. And so you can then look at the studies with allergy tests, and you can see that that's sort of an adjusted number, that 50% per decade. What he's saying is that researchers did subtract out the increase in allergies they could attribute to better diagnosis, and the net adjusted number is an increase of 50% per decade. Increases in prevalence have also happened in autoimmune diseases such as type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and a genetically based disease called celiac. 
It is most definitely uh, genetic. It's the world's most common genetic autoimmune disease. That's Sharon Shilson, executive director of the Celiac Disease Center at the University of Chicago. It's one of the world's leading research centers for celiac. As for what celiac is, well, if you have this condition, eating gluten-containing foods such as wheat or rye will trigger your immune system to attack your digestive organs. Speaking with us via Skype, Shilson said that celiac has definitely been underdiagnosed in the U.S. The prevalence of the disease we now know to be 1% and leaning toward 2%. In the U.S., more doctors are finally becoming aware that it's important to screen for this serious food intolerance. But even after subtracting out the effects of more awareness and diagnosis, celiac disease is increasing. Listen again to Shilson. The prevalence of the disease we now know to be 1% and leaning toward 2%. What she's saying here is that not long ago, 1 in 100 people tested positive for celiac disease. These days, it's closer to 1 in 50. And all that is up from 15 years ago. The medical director at the Celiac Disease Center is Dr. Stefano Guandolini. He says in Europe, where doctors have been more aware of celiac, they used to report that 1 in 250 people had the disease. Now it's closer to 1 in 50, and Guandolini warns that the rates are still rising. There is certainly an increase in true prevalence of this condition, which is not unique for celiac disease. It happens for other autoimmune conditions as well as allergic conditions. But here's something strange. Celiac is a genetic condition, and genes don't change a lot in just 50 years. So why is the rate of celiac disease going up? Sharon Shilson agrees that this is a puzzle. It is. It is this. You could do a lot of uh, research on that. Many have, and we still haven't concluded exactly what is causing it, but it is definitely trending up. As for how fast it's trending upward, here's Guandolini. For celiac disease uh, from various parts of the world, the current estimate is that in about 20 years, the prevalence uh, doubles. So every 20 years it doubles, which is, of course, uh, concerning. And while the increase of allergies in the U.S. might be starting to level off, it's not clear whether the rate of increase in celiac has peaked. So why is it going up so fast? As you will see later on, GM crops might tie in with this increase in asthma, allergies, and autoimmune diseases. But we didn't have genetically modified crops in the 1960s. And that's when many of these diseases started trending up. Now, we did have pesticides, and we did have people increasing their consumption of sugar and lots of mass-produced food items. Guandolini says these might all be part of the equation. He's more inclined toward another culprit. My understanding is that the most accepted theory, which really has some rather strong base in epidemiological observations, is the so-called hygiene hypothesis. The hygiene hypothesis states that as people move from family farms to cities, they lose contact with beneficial barnyard microbes. He says there are other ways we've made our world awfully clean, but losing the interaction with lots of local microbes loses a crucial training of the immune system to help it understand friend versus foe. He says this leads to more allergies, asthma, and autoimmune disease. Because we live in a much cleaner society, the, uh, and because we use vaccines, um, fortunately, the uh, rates of infectious disease and the rates of diffusion of bacteria and other microorganisms has greatly decreased. As a result, especially during the important time window of the first uh, 18 months of life or so, 
as a result, our gut immune system has not been exposed to the load of antigens uh, coming from the environment that were expected by Mother Nature to be there. In experimental animals, if you uh, reduce substantially the exposure of antigens uh, to the developing gut, as a result, you have serious uh, complications in terms of uh, the animal immune system never actually developing so well and functioning well. And the, the response to subsequent stimuli is then skewed toward reactions which are either on the allergic or on the autoimmune type. Back at National Jewish Immunologist Andy Liu agrees that our more urban, industrial, hygienic way of living and eating might be making us more allergic. The hygiene hypothesis may actually have to do more with microbes, in particular bacteria, that may be healthful. Lou says that allergies and asthma are much less common in rural areas, especially on small family farms where people really do live close to their animals. Places where um, people are farming with domestic animals or living close to their animals. Like if you go to developing countries, there are people who are living rural and they live with their animals in their home because that's the safest place to keep them. Otherwise, they either walk away or somebody might take them. The thinking is that it may have to do with enrichment of your microbial community by living close to animals. But is the move away from farm animals really the key ingredient to the rise of allergies and other immune disorders? Or could the problem we face today with these diseases be a bit more like that parable regarding the camel? You know the story. Once upon a time, two merchants were loading a camel with goods for the market. They started with a bale of straw. Then one merchant said, this camel can carry more. So in this story, they load the camel with canisters filled with pesticides. They load on food policies that make it hard for small family farms to stay in business and for people to buy that kind of produce affordably. They add processed foods and lots of sugar. The camel by now is shaking. Then a merchant notices a single straw has fallen from the bale of straw. No sense wasting even a single piece of straw, he says, and he places it on the camel. When it comes to a straw that breaks the camel's back, or that breaks the immune system of a person, is the hygiene hypothesis really the main thing to look at, or could the increase in immune disorders involve a lot of things relating to moving away from communities that support family farms? So not only fewer local microbes, but also less whole, natural, local food, more pesticides, and other toxins, such as those introduced by GMOs. A study was published recently in the Journal of Toxicology. It was done by a team of medical doctors at a teaching university, research university in Canada. That's Charles Benbrook, chief scientist of the Organic Center, based in Boulder. He's talking about a troubling study about a GM crop called BT corn. They tested the blood of pregnant women and women that had just had their babies, and they tested umbilical cord blood to see if they could detect any signs of genetically engineered crops. And to everyone's amazement that follows this area of science, they detected the BT corn protein in 70-80% of the samples, not just of the women's blood, but of the umbilical cord blood. 
Now, BT... Bacillus thuringiensis. Thuringiensis. That's BT corn is corn that's been genetically engineered to express a natural toxin throughout the plant so that when the corn earworm chews on the corn plant, it ingests enough of this BT to kill the corn earworm. Chuck Benbrook, is this a protein like in meat or in chicken or in uh, soy or in milk, which our body readily and happily digests into energy and building blocks, or is this a toxin? It's a toxin to the insect because it binds to the stomach wall in the insects and basically eats a hole in it. The insects die of dehydration because they lose their body fluids, but does not have the same effect on human being stomach. The reason that this finding is so significant is that for 15 years since BT corn has been planted, the conventional wisdom and the contention by the biotech industry has been that these proteins, when you have corn, you eat corn chips, there's BT sweet corn. If you eat corn in any form, you are ingesting these BT toxins because they're in the kernel. But the industry submitted data to the regulatory agencies around the world that alleged that the protein broke down within seconds of getting into the human stomach because of the pH in the human stomach. So it wasn't supposed to survive, and therefore regulators didn't do any risk assessments on it. I don't think that 70% of this protein in the bloodstreams of women and their children... Yeah, indeed. That's why I'm highlighting this particular study is the kind of big surprise that isn't supposed to happen with a technology that many of its advocates have said is the most carefully tested food technology ever, when in fact there's been very little independent science done on how they affect the nutritional quality of food, whether there are novel allergens and or toxins produced and how these GE proteins and compounds move through the human digestive system. Now, Chuck Benbrook, while it's disquieting to hear that we may have these proteins inside of us, these toxins that we're not supposed to get through our digestive tract, this is not the mainstream hypothesis for what's causing the increase in autoimmune diseases and celiac disease and a lot of these other nasty things, allergies, the main medical hypothesis is it's just too clean. If I were to ask most experts on allergies and autoimmune reactions, that's what they would point to. And quite honestly, when I've checked with them, they've been pretty dismissive about the idea that GMOs could play any part. GMOs may not play a huge part, but the pesticides that are used in conjunction with the GMOs may in fact be playing a much more significant part than people realize. What the new science is showing is that there appears to be some common causes for ADHD, asthma, allergies, eczema, several of these autoimmune disorders that can afflict certain kids. And, and once they get one, they often have trouble with others. Now, now, this is a very disquieting area because right now the rates of increase in the United States and in other developed nations are 
a doubling of these diseases every 20 years is what the projected rate is for some of these, such as celiac. Right. So something is causing this. And I think the evidence is pointing to exposures during pregnancy to so-called endocrine-disrupting chemicals that have the capacity to trigger what's called an epigenetic change. We now have strong evidence that some common pesticides that the average American is ingesting two or three or four different residues a day in their daily diet can be a risk factor for obesity, for diabetes, for certain forms of cancer, for autism, and for a variety of neurological diseases. This is really incredible that very low level of exposures during fetal development can wreak so much havoc in a developing child. Now, we're talking about mainly a theory here. We can't guarantee that this is something that is driving these epidemics. We're never going to be able to prove what caused a given child to have autism or a birth defect, why one person in a family that smokes gets lung cancer and another person in the same family that smokes doesn't. But the impact of prenatal fetal development exposures and what's the so-called epigenetic changes have been demonstrated in multiple studies with laboratory animals. And there's no reason to not expect the same sorts of impacts to be occurring in the human population. So all of this is possible. Right now we know that China is developing GMOs at an amazing rate. Their expectation is that's because we need it for production of food. We know if we don't have GMOs, we still have pesticides out there. How do we get around all of this? What can we really do? The future for agriculture is integrated approaches where you manage the farming system to sustain fertile soils and healthy soils, healthy plants and animals, and maintain enough biodiversity in your system so that very few pests build up to levels to where they can really threaten a crop or or livestock. There are, are millions of farmers around the world that are using these sorts of systems, and they're not dependent on GM seeds. They don't regularly use pesticides. When they do have to use a pesticide, it's usually not nearly as toxic one as farmers in the U.S., for example, that become dependent on these broadly toxic insecticides. If you choose to control pests with chemicals, then the pests will adapt and it will take more and more and more chemicals. And that's the slippery slope that American agriculture is having a hard time getting off of. And it's also a slippery slope that today's genetically engineered crops are really pushing the foot down on the gas pedal. Do you really think that old-fashioned farming can compete with all this biotechnology? Old-fashioned farming with modern equipment and modern genetics and modern science, absolutely. That was the Organic Center's chief scientist, Charles Benbrook, describing how GMO foods might be affecting our health. His solution? Support more family farms. In fact, whether it's toxins in GMOs or pesticides on crops or the move away from all those barnyard bugs. All these researchers, including Andy Liu from National Jewish and Stefano Guandolini from the Celiac Research Center, they all agree that there's something about the small farm model, where people lived closer to nature, that seems to have been healthier for our immune systems. And if we can somehow recreate that health, whether it's through new vaccines or new probiotics, or perhaps by changing our ways of living. Perhaps we can take these rising rates of immune-related disorders and bring them down.
For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. And thanks to Shelley for that report. If you'd like to hear more from the scientists we interviewed today, check out the extended versions of these interviews on our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and engineered by Tom McKinnon. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Walsinger produced it. Additional music from Fortet, Tabla Competition, and Chaika Lo. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our shows are available there and through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>